You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And as you're doing so, you can get out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, good morning again. So glad you guys are here. I'm not sure if I introduced myself last time or not. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here and excited to open up God's Word. I'm also excited about, so next week we're going to start a, our new series on the book of Joshua. And we're going to walk through exegetically the book of Joshua. And it is going to be inspirational. It is going to be practical. There is so much to learn about God and learn about ourselves in that book. So I'm so excited. We have a little something different today, though. See, my, my goal today is simple. My, my goal today is just to share with you the simple True, life-altering, even life-shattering gospel. I've been praying this week that all of us, each and every one of us today, would, would truly see that grace, the grace of God, is the most powerful force in the universe. And maybe somebody in here that will learn that for the first time today. Maybe there will, there's others of us who will be renewed and reminded Maybe for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, but I hope that happens to us every day of our life. Today's passage, the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it the greatest words in all the Bible. John Piper said it's the most important paragraph in the Bible. Martin Luther said it's the chief point, the very central place of the whole Bible. Why is it so important? That's high praise from a lot of guys who have studied the Bible a lot. Well, it's because it addresses the fundamental struggle of our lives, the struggle for righteousness. Now, I can already hear some of you are like, Clint, I got a lot of struggles. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I got kids, you know, I got jobs, finances, money. My, my fantasy football team isn't great this year. That's a struggle. But that righteousness, that feels like a super spiritual word. That, that's, down, that's on down my list of what I would put as my list of struggles, but do not be fooled. This is the struggle that's underneath all the other struggles of your life. It's behind our highest hopes. It's behind our darkest fears. It's like this, there's a you know, famous movie, Chariots of Fire. There's a, a runner in there, a guy named Harold Abrams, and he's kind of the rival of the main character, uh, Eric Liddell. And there's a moment in that movie, it's right before they're about getting ready to run the 100 meters in the 1924 Olympics. And Harold, he's, he's filled with anxiety, he's filled with fear, he's kind of looking across his life, you know, as the trainer's getting him ready. All, all of a sudden he turns to Eric Liddell and he says, I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. And now, one hour's time, I'll, I'll be out there again, I'll raise my eyes I'll look down this corridor just four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? So, what a haunting question. Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole life, everything I do. Why do I do it? Will I? We've all had those moments. Do I matter? Am I enough? Do I have what it takes? Can I measure up? Do I belong? 
So you, you can think of righteousness, I know it's kind of a big theological word. You can think of it as simply meeting a standard. That's all it is. And it is built into us. You don't even have to be religious. Even the most secular person, this is, this is built into us. There's a, a secular psychologist, a guy named Jonathan Haidt, wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And he argues that this struggle for righteousness, it's behind our politics, it's behind our social groups, it's, it's what's behind any sort of so-called tribe that we may be a part of. Because each group has an ideal, it has a set of moral standards, and, and we all strive to prove that we belong by meeting the ideal, matching the standard. We all want to measure up to the morality of that group, and so he argues this is the motivating force behind most of the decisions that we make. So here's, here's what this looks like in, in daily life. Many of you are struggling in parenting righteousness. You do everything you can. You work so hard to be the perfect parent. There is not a book or a technique you haven't tried. Many of us struggle for career or social righteousness. We want to be accepted. We want to be respected, even admired by the right people. And we want to be the person that has all the answers. Many struggle with physical appearance Righteousness, you work so hard to unlock the, the right health secret to fend off time and gravity as long as you can. And listen, you, know, you don't need me to tell you this. You know, our, our culture has been swept away by political and cause righteousness. You work so hard to be the most pure, the most committed, so everyone knows that you belong. Everyone knows you're on the right team. So think of those as lowercase r righteousness, but underneath them is capital R righteousness. Capital R righteousness is the righteousness of God. You see, real righteousness, it doesn't come from some book or some influencer. It is the character of God. It's what he's like. It's, it's how he is. That is righteousness. And righteousness, men and women, is the currency of the kingdom of God. So God's kingdom operates not on money, not on good intentions. It operates on the character of God. That's, that's what it takes to get in. You can't buy a ticket in. You've got to have the righteousness of God. You've got to match his character to be in his kingdom. And so Paul's going to show us today how you can have capital R, the righteousness of God. Let's read Romans 3. We'll start in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It starts off on a great note, men and women. The first thing Paul tells us is that righteousness is here. That's the first step. Righteousness is here. He says the righteousness of God has been manifested. That word manifested, it's an important word. It means real life. It's not, it, it is in time and in history. It's not just abstract or in theory or in the cloud or in virtual reality. It is actually really here. It also has this idea of purity. So it's the real thing. It's not an imitation. It's not a, a, a pretend version. And so if I were to come up to you and I'd hand you an envelope and said, your paycheck is manifested in this envelope, you're going to be real annoyed if you open that envelope and there's a bunch of Monopoly money inside, right? That's a counterfeit. It's a pretend. No, no, no. We're talking cool, hard cash you can take to the bank. The righteousness of God has been 
manifested. It's here. Okay, so it's here. It's appeared, but how can it be mine? How can I get my hands on it? How can it be applied to me? Well, it's not how most of us live or think naturally. The next thing he tells us is, you can't earn righteousness. You can't earn it. He says it appears apart from the law. And so law, think anything you can do. Any moral standard you can meet. So think, think of something you can do. You know, pray, tithe, fast, let your mother-in-law come live with you for a while. Whatever it is, none of that will get your hands on the righteousness of God. And this is so, this is so important for us to understand this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world, even every other secular uh, philosophy in the world. See, every other religion says righteousness is about what you do. you got to do it somehow. I think for honest, that, that makes sense. Nothing makes more common sense than surely I have to do something. I mean, this is our whole life. You know, I do a good job. I get a paycheck. I, I Answer correctly on the test, I get a good grade. I catch the pass, the points go on the board. But he's going to go on to say in verse 27, he's going to say, no, no, listen, when it comes to the righteousness of God, there's no boasting. That word boasting, it's a military term. And so the picture, you know, is a bunch of soldiers kind of taunting their enemy as they charge into battle. We're bigger, we're badder, we got bigger weapons, we're going to squish you like a bug. You can picture Goliath, that's what he's doing, First Samuel 17, we're just out there taunting, you know, the armies of Israel. What you boast in is what gives you confidence to go out and get success and and to measure up. It's that thing you point to that you say, because I have that or because I do that, I can measure up. I belong. When you ask those moments like Harold Abrams, will I justify my existence? What's the very next thing you reach for? Okay, whatever that is, whatever in those moments, whatever that first thing is that you reach for, it will never get you God's righteousness. Never. Do you really believe that? I have a hard time believing that. And the research shows that many in church don't actually believe that. A guy named David Kinneman, a few years back, wrote a book called Unchristian, based on a bunch of research that he did on, on what people sitting in churches actually believe. He writes this, more than four out of every five agree that the Christian life is well described is trying hard to do what God commands. Two-thirds of churchgoers said rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. And one quarter admitted that they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. Translation, that's a bunch of people who say it's about my works. It's about what I'm doing and whether I measure up. He goes on to say how this view affects how we see non-Christians, so the people not sitting in churches. He says, Christians believe the primary reason reason outsiders have rejected Christ is that they cannot handle the rigorous standards of following Christ. There's a nuance here that allows Christians to feel like they're better than other people, more capable of being holy and sinless. We rationalize that Outsiders don't want to become Christ followers because they can't really cut it. We've got to be very clear on what Paul's message is this morning. Paul's message isn't that some can't cut it. It's that none of us can cut it. 
No one can cut it. None of us is capable of earning righteousness. No matter what we do, it is apart from the law. But there's still a way. Because the next thing he tells us is you can receive righteousness. So you can't earn righteousness, but you can receive righteousness. That's why he says in verse 22, it is through faith. And it is available for all. All who believe. Not just the achievers, not just the ones who can cut it all. And listen, if it's available to all, then it's available to you. You can receive it. And again, this is a place we've got, we got to be so careful because it can kind of sound like I just said, hey, there's nothing you can do, but here's one thing you can do. That's not it. You know, some, something we're really good at in the, in the church office is saying, you, you can't be saved by works, but then we can kind of turn faith into a work, can't we? You know, we think of faith as some sort of feeling about God, or maybe it's an intense attitude, or maybe it's a level of certainty, and, and, and now I have to maintain that confidence. I've got to keep that feeling up. I've got to maintain that certainty all the time, and when it's not there, I've got to drum it up. I've got to find a way, I don't know, uh, poor faith, uh. but when you begin to measure, qualify, quantify your faith, you're making it into a work. And that is not how the Bible describes faith. In the Bible, faith is simply the way a gift is received. That's all it is. Faith is simply coming to God with empty hands. Now, in our house, we have a cowbell. And it's not because we're like Mississippi State fans or anything. It's because my wife got tired of yelling for the kids to come and eat dinner. And so in our house, that cowbell means one thing. It means dinner is ready. So we ring that bell, and it's like Pavlov's dogs. I mean, here they come from the yard, neighbor's house, wherever, okay? I even start salivating a little bit when we ring that bell. So when our kids, when they run in, and they sit down at the dinner table, trusting that we'll feed them and we'll provide them, does their sitting down merit anything? I mean, is that like the way they're earning their dinner? No, they aren't earning anything. It is merely the way they receive their dinner that we are providing for them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, I think, describes very well what faith looks like in real life. He says, The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. Men and women, faith is self-forgetfulness. Dallas Willard describes faith as waving the white flag, surrender. I recognize that I have nothing left to fight with. I have lost. And when you're ready to do that, Paul says, righteousness can be yours. You see, what Paul does here, he doesn't, dissect the strength, the quality of our faith. He directs us to the correct object of our faith. So that's what he tells us next. Righteousness is in Christ. Righteousness is in Christ. It's not in the law. It's not in your faith. It's in a person. See, Christ 
is righteous. He perfectly matches God's character. He has what it takes. And so all the righteousness that you need is in him. Men and women, this is maybe the most important lesson we can learn about faith. It is the object of faith that matters, not the quality of the faith. You've probably heard, you know, the analogy of faith. Something like a chair or a stool, you know. And I can stand aside and I can look and be like, oh, yeah, I I think that thing would hold me up. Oh, yeah, it would totally, I could sit in it, it'd be fine. But until I actually put my weight on it, it'd be really funny if this thing fell right now. Where I, I don't have anything on the ground, I don't have a backup plan, all of my weight is resting on this. Now I'm trusting it. And that is faith. And that is true. But what if I pulled out a different chair? What if I pulled out this chair? So I borrowed this from my daughter, from her princess, Disney Princess Castle. Okay, thank you, Hannah. So what if I said, you know what? My faith is so strong. Y'all have the, I have the strongest faith in the whole world. In fact, I have so much faith. I'm going to get them top ropes up here. I'm going to cannonball onto that chair. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that will hold me. That's how strong and unflinching my faith is. How's that going to go for me? What if the best I can muster on this stool is maybe with some nervousness and some anxiety and some apprehension and doubt and questions. I don't, I don't know who made this. I don't understand. I don't. And with a weak, mixed faith, I go ahead and I trust it. It's not the strength of your faith faith that matters most. It is the object you're placing your faith in. And listen, some of you have bold, enduring, relentless faith in the wrong things. You are 100% trusting and certain in something that will not hold you. It may be a position. It may be a person. It may be your own ability or comfort or some political leader or some secret to happiness that you have found. And it is like doing a cannonball onto a Barbie chair. It's not going to go well. But you know what? There's probably some of you who you feel shame because you feel like your faith in Christ has been weak. And you see other people around you, my faith, my faith isn't as strong as them. And listen, as long as you've put your faith in the right object, you've done well. It's in the right place. It was never about you. It's never about the strength of the faith you could muster up. Your righteousness is in Christ. It is not in you. And so today, you can come, even with some uncertainty, even with some hesitancy, even with some fear, and you can put your faith in Christ, and he will hold you up. And listen, I know, I, know, I know how my heart works. Here's how my heart works. I hear that. I'm like, yeah, 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 that, amen, brother. But surely you have to do something, right? I mean, what's the catch? I mean, what, what's the cost? Surely it's going to cost me something. Surely I have to sacrifice something. What, what's the deal? Let's keep reading. Verse 22, he says, For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the next thing Paul wants us to know is this. Righteousness costs you nothing. It is in Christ and it costs you nothing. He tells us two universal truths that are true for all times, all people, in all places. They apply to everyone. Number one, everyone has sinned. That's the summary of the first chapter. First three chapters of Roman. All have sinned, no exceptions. And when he talks about, when he says all have sinned, he, he uses the global errors. That It's, a, it's a, a, a way that includes the past, the present, and the future. So he's trying to paint a picture of your, your whole life. Past, present, and future, all sin. All of it. And so he's trying to tell us, listen, if it costs something, you can't afford it. You're bankrupt. The second universal truth It's where the bad news becomes the best news. Because he says, yeah, all have sinned, but all can be justified. Every single person. Now understand, when the the Bible uses the word justified, that that root word is the same word for righteous. Justice, righteousness, they're, they're the same word throughout all of Scripture. So when he says you can be justified, he means you can be given righteousness. And so... A translation might be, you can be enrighteousified. You can be enrighteousinated. But those aren't words. So we translate it to justify. But he's saying you can be made righteous. And you may notice he switches the verb tense. So when he, when he talks about the law, he uses the active voice, something I do. So I give, that's active voice. But now he's using the passive voice, I, I receive. So instead of I give, it's I am given. So he's saying, listen, righteousness is not an action you do it is an action done to you you receive it and he says you receive it by grace as a gift he says it's freely by his grace he's putting this double emphasis here because all grace is a gift it kind of goes without saying but it's like he's saying it's a gift gift he doubles down on it this word freely it means without a cause totally unwarranted and given without even initiation on your part, you know. You know, some people, I do this. I find a way to drop that it's my birthday today. You know, you can kind of initiate the gift giving. None of that, freely, totally without initiative on your part. The righteousness of God comes to you wrapped in wrapping paper with a bow on top as a gift. But like all gifts, that doesn't mean it didn't cost somebody something. And so his next point is this, righteousness cost him greatly. So it cost you nothing, but it cost him greatly. And this is often the part we don't think of. Honestly, it's the part that we're most uh, uncomfortable with. The righteousness, it is free to you, but it wasn't free to Jesus. Let's keep reading verse 25. He says, whom, that whom is Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He uses big word propitiation. So propitiation points back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the idea really carries two meanings in one with it. First, it means the wiping away of sin, cleansing as far as the east is from the west, white as snow. Those verses that we say, yes, amen, we love that part. But the part we often miss is that it also means a payment 
that satisfies judgment. So propitiation means that through Jesus, God's wrath is poured out but redirected. It is redirected away from you and onto him. Have you ever wondered what made Jesus sweat blood? He was so distraught in the Garden of Gethsemane. He even said, you know, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. You know, I always thought it's because it's about to be really painful. Surely that's it. But then I got to ask, you know, is the creator of the universe so intimidated by some low-level Roman soldier? Or I know it's going to be painful, but is that pain really enough to make the second member of the tri- Trinity just tremble in anguish? And then you look and you see, listen, history is filled with martyrs who endured crucifixion and, frankly, much worse. And all the while, they're praising God, they're singing hymns, they're, they're all positive. Were they just more brave than Jesus Christ himself? No, no. See, what we have to understand is it wasn't the physical pain of the crucifixion that overwhelmed Jesus to the point of sorrow. Remember his request that, if there's, he says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Well, what, what cup? What cup are we talking about here? Are they, somebody, some vendor selling Kool-Aid there or something? What's going on? All throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is pictured as a cup of wine. You'll find it in Job, in Jeremiah, in Habakkuk, in Psalms, even in Revelation. And the picture is that every last drop of that wrath will be poured out on everyone who is not righteous. Everyone who doesn't measure up to God's character. What Jesus is afraid of here is that cup of God's wrath. But he goes forward anyway. He does it. And on the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and he drank every last drop. And so when he shouts, it is finished. It is like he is setting down that empty cup and wiping his lips and saying, I've taken every drop of God's wrath for your sin. So what, what your justification cost is God's wrath fully poured out on his son. That's why Paul says he can be just while he's your justifier. So he justified you, he unrighteousified you, but he didn't set his justice aside. So God isn't a liar. He doesn't just call you something you aren't actually, that you aren't actually are. He, and he doesn't slap some counterfeit label on you and call you righteous when you actually aren't. No, no, no. He just turned the judgment on himself. So you actually are righteous, and he calls you righteous. And so, men and women, when it is finished, when it's all been accomplished by someone else, what is left to do except simply receive it? I heard a story one time about a forest fire that broke out in Man Gulch Valley in Montana. 1949, and it's a fire that would become infamous. Fifteen smoke jumpers headed in, they parachuted in to fight this fire, and while they were there, they experienced what's called a blow-up, which is every firefighter's worst nightmare. See, a a blow-up happens in forest fires because a forest fire may start on the ground and spread on the ground, but quickly it rises. It climbs up the trees. They they call that a fire crowning, and when a, a fire crowns, now it spreads through the top of the trees, through the canopy of the forest, and they say when a fire crowns, it sounds like a freight train coming at you. 
and trees are lighting up, huge trees are lighting up like matches, and all the air is being sucked out by all the fire. And so they say the, the noise is deafening, it's thunderous. And it's very dangerous because when a fire crowns, all of a sudden it can shoot missiles of fire out in every direction, hundreds of yards away from that main fire. Now you have multiple fires spread all over the place. And, and when you have multiple fires all raging and burning, you're, all the conditions are right for what they call a blow-up. See, what happens is the air in between the fires gets super heated. And it gets hot until it reaches this ignition point. When it reaches that ignition point, it only needs one more ingredient. It needs one more thing, fresh oxygen. And so with one change of the wind, all of a sudden a gust of wind can bring in this fresh, fresh oxygen and boom, it lights. And they say that fire can spread hundreds of yards in a matter of seconds. This Mangulch Valley, it was between two mountains, and so the smoke jumpers, they parachuted in onto one of the ridges, but then it's a two-and-a-half-mile hike down to the valley to the fire, and so they begin that two-and-a-half-mile hike. They don't know it, but along, while they're doing that hike, the fire crowned, and now it's spreading across, and, and they can't see them, but now missiles of fire are launching out from the main fire all around them. There's a man named Wagner Dodge who was their captain. Because of course he was. Of course a man named Wagner Dodge is the captain of a bunch of firefighters, right? It's perfect. And all of a sudden he, he sees what's happening. He sees fires beside them and behind them. And he tells his men, hey, it is time to go. Now they turn around. And they've got a two and a half mile hike back up the mountain to get away from the fire. And they, they got a, he estimates about 400 yards from the fire. And all of a sudden the whole valley shakes with an explosion. And all the firefighters, they turn around and their face just turns white. Because they know. It's a blow up. And from that point on, they are not fighting fire. They are fleeing fire. They're dropping their axes and their backpacks and their shovels. And it is an all-out sprint to the top of that ridge. They say the air temperature could have been as high as 2,000 degrees. They would have struggled to breathe as the fire sucked all the oxygen out of the air. And they are in sheer desperation to get to the top of that mountain before the fire catches them. At some point, Dodge turns around and he realizes there's no way. They're not going to make it. He guesses they have about 30 seconds before the fire reaches them. And that's what he, when he does the unthinkable. He stops. He kneels down. And he lights a fire. That fire immediately, it lights and it takes off. It's, it's gone. And then he turns around to his men and he begs them to follow him into the fire. And one by one. All 13 just look at him in sheer disbelief, in sheer astonishment, and they run right past him. They decide to try and outrun the fire by themselves, but not Dodge. Dodge turned around, and he laid down on the ashes of where the fire had already burned. And he lived. Everyone who tried to outrun the fire that day on their own died. Everyone who said, I think I have what it takes, didn't. Only Dodge survived because he knew something that day that saved his life. And it's this, a fire can't burn twice. He realized his only hope of survival was to throw himself on the ashes of where the fire has already burned. Men and women, this is propitiation. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is how you get the righteousness of God. What Jesus did was receive the full fire of God's wrath 
And that fire cannot burn twice. And your choice today is whether you will keep running up that mountain on your own, trying to make it on your own, continue that struggle, continue to try to earn your own righteousness, or you can go where the fire has already burned. Throw yourself on him in utter dependence. And listen, when you do, when you do, the struggle is over. The very righteousness of God has come to you. And not only, not only do you escape his judgment, he says you get to become a son or a daughter of the most high king. I know you didn't earn it, but he gives it freely to you as a gift of his grace because he loves you. So if you've never received the righteousness of God by faith today, you can. And listen, we'd love to talk to you about that. You can find me, any of our elders, any of our members, anyone who follows Christ and just turn around and tell them. And we'd love to talk to you about that. For all in here who have received the righteousness of God in the past. My message to you is the same as Paul's message, message in Galatians. Continue the same way you started. Don't start trying to earn what you never could. Live every day in his grace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.